History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Siders are the real first Americans. But not really. So I hope our listeners are taking... And you are taking the cue of our intro in that this uh, this episode is going to be a little bit hard to follow and probably have some twists and turns. And on that basis, I wanted to start the episode with kind of a more lighthearted, fun discussion before we get into all the science today. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you if you have any movies that you've seen recently or in the last, I don't know, decade or so that you've found to be hard to follow or even TV shows that are difficult to follow, you know, that you find yourself rewinding and needing to watch again or that you have to repeat entirely. <laughs> um, well, loyal history's B-side listeners know that I do not watch a ton of movies. <laughs> um, so I guess recently nothing too much. I feel like the only TV shows I've been watching are like dumb sitcoms that you don't really need to think too much about. You don't even so, need to pay attention. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like the only TV show I really wanted to rewatch some stuff on it, like random scenes just to make sure I knew what was happening was like Breaking Bad, which yeah. even that was a year or so ago. And then as far as movies, though, I haven't seen anything like that recently, but I do remember when I first saw like Lord of the Rings <laughs> and I was, we were pretty little when that came out, I think, but I remember my dad dragged us to the movies to watch that. And I had no idea what was happening. Like rewatching it now, I would follow it pretty easily, but I remember being a kid and watching those and just so lost who all the characters were and what the storyline was. Yeah. So since you said not recently, I assume you haven't seen the new matrix movie, <laughs> which is the one that came to mind. Movie? There is, there is. I didn't see the Matrix, old Matrix movies. Resurrections. <laughs> okay, well, so, I mean, the reason the new one was hard to follow is because it's been a while since I saw the old ones, and it references them a lot, and also kind of twists and plays with time um, a little bit. So it's it's that kind of thing where it's hard to, hard to follow the storyline when they're jumping back and forth between different time periods, and especially something like The Matrix, where the entire point of the series is like questioning your perception of reality mm -hmm. and that can get kind of confusing. Have you seen inception or shutter islands? Nope. <laughs> no, no Leo. All right. So, I mean, when I was the reason I wanted to do this intro is because the whole episode kind of felt like history's B side section. Um, <laughs> just so you know, and our listeners who haven't seen the movie, um, essentially it's a movie about these, I don't know what to call them dream travelers. They infiltrate other people's dreams. And there's a point in the movie where they're like in a dream within somebody else's dream within another person's dream. And you're like levels deep in dreams and you have to keep track of what's happening at each level 
because time moves differently and it's just really hard to follow this if you're sounds not like paying. you're still talking about anti-santas infiltrating children's dreams and <laughs> I never turning stopped. them into I've nightmares <laughs> i've just been here talking and waiting for you to hop back on google meet <laughs> But the reason I say that, I guess, is because I started off thinking it would be a cool B-sider to cover somebody other than the the beloved Christopher Columbus, as far as the first, <laughs> the discoverer of America. So Beloved. Yeah, yeah. You know, good old, good old Chris. Who doesn't love him? If you'd like to hear more about his life and exploration we have another episode on bartolome <laughs> de las casas that covers some of that so i thought maybe leif erickson would be a good topic you know the vikings hitting greenland but also seemed that also seemed yeah that's you know, pretty well known too relevant yeah too mainstream too well known and i had heard and knew kind of in the back of my mind that there were human beings on the continent of north america before leif erickson was here he would have been, I guess, the first European to to reach, you know, the new world. But I knew there were indigenous people here long before that, but I didn't know much about them. So that's kind of where I landed for our topic for today. And then I found out that there were people even before them that are, <laughs> I guess, still indigenous North Americans, but, you know, predated what scientists for a long time believed were the first group of people here. So we kind of had a a B-sider within a B-sider within a B-sider oh, or a history C-sider, if you will. So I know this intro is kind of short, but I think today's topic is going to be complex enough and is going to require enough tangents to explain it that we can move right into it and our listeners won't be wanting for extra material. I've got my notepad and pencil ready. I'm going to try to diagram this out because I'm going to be lost. You might need like a bulletin board with yarn and pins. (laughs) (laughs) The topic for today specifically is a group of people known as the Clovis people. And we'll learn about why they're called that and who they are. The main reason why these people are grouped together by scientists at all is because of the presence of this artifact that they started finding in several different spots um, dating to around the same time period and seeming to come from a a contiguous group of human beings. You know, they might have been in different tribes and different areas, but they all had this similar tool, which is called the Clovis Point. Um, A hallmark of the toolkit associated with these people is this distinctively shaped fluted stone spear point known as, the, known as the Clovis point. And it's basically an arrowhead. That's what you might be used to as an arrowhead where it's on, I mean, it's bifacial meaning that both sides are carved in. So sort of like a knife would be, but mm-hmm. the Clovis point also has this flute or this carved out section in the middle where you could attach it to a, a stick. What does that mean? Flute? Like I picture flute as like a hollow cylinder because of the instrument or like a champagne flute. Sure. But so think of if you took a standard arrowhead, just like a flat mm-hmm. arrowhead and took a spoon and just carved out the center of it until there was a groove. Okay. Down the center. So in the same way that like a shovel or a spoon is concave and has a center that's a little bit dented in, 
these arrowheads had that same shape where there was a spot to kind of insert a piece of wood and attach it. So it is kind of not hollow, but if it was all the way around, it would be like a hollow tube. Right. So this point is known as the Clovis point. And like I said, it's bifacial, uh, meaning it's carved on both sides. And these were produced during a roughly 300 year period Archaeologists don't agree on whether the widespread presence of these artifacts indicates the proliferation of a single people or the adoption of this superior technology by several different populations. So like I said, they knew there were people scattered around North America. They don't know if this tool came out of like a, this singular people that were all together or if one of these groups invented this tool and it just kind of spread kind of the way bronze production and then later iron would have been spread around as a superior technology. We're talking early enough that a carved stone was, you know, superior (laughs) forefront technology. So I assume you will probably answer this question later on, but is this just a tool for hunting or did it have other purposes? Its primary use would have been to hunt and then to carve meat for sure, since that would have been there. Mm -hmm you know, primary way of sourcing food. But I imagine something that was as useful as this would have also been used to cut things, cut clothing, cut other material, plant material to build shelters, prepare food. So I imagine there were a number of uses for them, but I, I, the primary one would have been to hunt and prepare food. Okay. So these people are named after these artifacts that are found And they were all found between the years of 1932 and 1936 at Blackwater Nocality No. 1, which was an archaeological site between the towns of Clovis and Portales, New Mexico. So this ancient civilization of people is named after a modern town? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And that, in my research, seemed to be a norm amongst anthropological and archaeological researchers is that they would name their findings after the town or region that they were found in, which makes sense. I mean, we're talking about a time period of which we know very little, so there wouldn't be a lot. I mean, there's not a lot of historical data or records to name these people by. It's not like they had books and named themselves so we could call (laughs) them that. So for research purposes, it makes sense that archaeologists would basically name these things after where they were found. Okay. So yes, an ancient civilization is named after a relatively modern town in New Mexico. Yeah, it just seems kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah. Like they just happened to find the first artifacts there. So this whole civilization of people is named after a town that wouldn't exist for thousands of years later. Right. Well, many of them are not around (laughs) (laughs) to to argue for a different name. Are you saying this is appropriation? On a long enough time scale, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose so. Do we need to get woke for the first Americans who might not actually be the first Americans? I think this entire episode is woke and that we're talking about the first Americans. That's and, true. I mean, to add more complexity onto all of this, I called the episode title The Real First Americans, but not really because they're not technically Americans. That's true. Like, we named this continent. <laughs> right. We named this continent that, and they, this group of people, at least, this culture specifically, was long past before Europeans ever arrived. Right. 
the real first so is... indigenous peoples. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you might be asking, like, okay, so they found a rock carved into a shape. Great. Like, why does this matter? And there's a couple of reasons for this. These finds were deemed especially important due to their direct association with mammoth species and the extinct bison anticus. So they found these tools along with the remains of bison anticus, which is an extinct ancestor of the bison, and also mammoth species from the Ice Age. Since these Clovis points were first discovered, Clovis sites have been identified throughout much of the contiguous United States, as well as Mexico and Central America, even stretching into northern South America. Clovis I, people are gen... I have a dumb question. Is the contiguous... There are no dumb questions. <laughs> is the contiguous United States different than the continental United States? Like, does that include Alaska? I don't think it includes Alaska. I don't think these were found in Alaska. Okay. So this is specifically talking about where we found them. So this is just the lower 48, basically. Right. Okay. So it appears that's where these people lived. And that makes sense, given the fact that this was would have been during a, a glacial ice age. And Canada would have been even colder than it is now. <laughs> even colder than it is in Ohio right now? It's freaking freezing here. I know. <laughs> is, it, is it six degrees? That's what my dad said. Uh, I think that might be like the wind chill right now. I don't know. It was so cold when Mm -hmm. I was walking Odie. (laughs) I got out of the car in California and it was 26 and I was like, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Because of where these Clovis points were found and the remains found around them, Clovis people are generally accepted to have hunted mammoths as well as extinct bison, mastodon, gomphotheres, sloths, tapir. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think it's taper. Taper. I'm Taper. <laughs> Camelops, horse, and other small animals. Okay, so gomphotheres? Is that what you said? Gomphotheres. What are those? They're similar to, I mean, it, it looks a lot like an elephant. Like, think woolly mammoth minus the fur, minus the woolly. <laughs> oh. I have to look up a picture of that. What about a camelop? A camelop is actually a lot like a camel. It it looks almost exactly like you'd expect a prehistoric camel to look. Interesting. It has less of a hump and more of like an elongated nose. And these were indigenous to what we now know as the United States? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Because you wouldn't find a lot of the modern versions of those here, right? I mean, we don't have elephants or camels no in the united states we do not outside of zoos (laughs) right i don't believe we have camels the only one i saw or the only two i saw that i think exist in north america would be horse and sloths but i don't even know if sloths do i don't know taper still exists it's like a small pig-like mammal with an elongated nose kind of like an anteater (laughs) and then mastodon is a relative of the woolly mammoth but it is i mean it is surprising that we had animals such as woolly mammoths here and eventually there were no elephants i'm sure i'm sure there's a scientist out there probably james reed who could (laughs) tell us a lot more about why it's because of the clovis people yeah maybe they hunted i mean they probably did hunt some animals to extinction that's why we have no gumpathiers 
They should have had PETA back then. (laughs) (laughs) We're not starting on that one. (laughs) If only prehistoric peoples had considered vegetarianism, we might still be roaming around with woolly mammoths. In addition to these, more than 125 species of plants and animals are known to have been used by the Clovis people in the portion of the Western Hemisphere they inhabited. The oldest known Clovis site in North America is believed to be Alfin del Mundo in northwestern Sonora, Mexico, discovered during a 2007 survey. It features occupation dating around 13,390 calorated years BP. Now you might find yourself asking, as I did, what is a year BP and what is, furthermore, a calibrated year BP? British Petroleum? No, it is not British Petroleum. (laughs) (laughs) Though that would be an interesting influence of, like, oil companies on historical (laughs) studies. They had product placement and archaeological digs. Right. That's where they find their petroleum. (laughs) (laughs) So... BP stands for before the present, and it's the number of years before the present. Now, this doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like it means. Uh, It's a method of dating that's used primarily by scientists, specifically archaeologists, anthropologists, and geologists to describe the age of artifacts. Because the present changes every year, archaeologists, by convention, use the year 1950 AD as their reference point. So 2000 BP would be the equivalent of 50 BC. This seems unnecessarily confusing. Like, why don't they just follow the same calendar years that we use for every other aspect of life? I've never heard of this, so maybe there's other scientists' fields that use their own version of dating, but it seems like it would make more sense to have a fixed calendar, which I guess they do if they're using 1950 as their base year, but it seems like it would make more sense to just use the same dating as everyone else. Right. Well, here's where it gets even more confusing, and I'm going to do my best to explain this properly. Um, It's definitely not going to be perfect, but it all has to do with the way archaeologists and other scientists date these artifacts. And it's through a process called radiocarbon dating. And that works essentially by measuring the amount of this specific isotope called carbon-14 in whatever they're trying to date. And the reason this works theoretically is is that carbon-14 decays at a predictable steady rate. So over time, these artifacts would contain a specific amount of carbon-14 based on how old they were when they were being used, when they were above ground. The reason why they use this is because BP technically, radiocarbon years, when they are what's considered uncalibrated, aren't even actually specific calendar years. They they just refer to how much carbon has been decaying in these artifacts. So what they have to do, because the isotope carbon-14 fluctuates in the Earth's atmosphere and has, for 70,000 years, has fluctuated in the atmosphere... They actually have a really complex series of statistical analyses or calibrations, as they call them, to transfer the uncalibrated years BP to actual calendar years or calibrated years BP. (laughs) Hang with me. (laughs) So they measure this stone. It's got a certain measure of uncalibrated years BP. They run it through these calibrations that have to do with projections of this carbon-14 isotope in the atmosphere. 
and that gives them the calibrated or as close as they can get to calendar years BP as possible. Now, why the reason why this seems easier or would be easier for the scientists is that if they only used years BC, they would constantly have to be going back and forth with these statistical calibrations instead of just talking in their own language. So I think it probably makes sense to do these calibrations and transfer it into standard dating to like convey this information to the public. And that would probably be the work of, you know, a statistical data analyst or a journalist to do. But within archaeological community, it's just easier for them to stay in this alternate dating pattern as a means of communicating with one another. So I I don't know if you will know the answer to this off the top of your head, but you said something, I don't remember the exact words, but the fact that they didn't necessarily line up with the actual calendar years in the way that mm-hmm. the carbon-14 decayed, is that... I mean, you would think it would have to line up with years at some point if it decays at a predictive manner, right? Or is it is it relative to the current Earth conditions? It's relative to the current Earth conditions, and that's the problem, is that it this isotope does decay at a steady rate. And in a vacuum, it would. It would decay at a steady rate, and this wouldn't be necessary. But Because we have climate heating and cooling right. over time, it doesn't always necessarily decay at that rate? Yes. In fact, the Earth, depending on its position in space, if it's closer to an area with solar radiation or cosmic radiation from elsewhere, the isotopes count or density increases in the atmosphere. So depending on where it is in this in space, the Earth's atmosphere might contain more or less carbon-14. I don't know exactly how that gets into the artifact <laughs> or why that matters statistically. I, I have a very fuzzy understanding of this, but for the purposes of understanding the rest of this episode, know that when they take in this raw data the, from the radiocarbon dating they basically take that. It doesn't match up to calendar years. They calibrate it using a scale of sorts based on projections of what the Earth's atmosphere might have contained at different times. So basically, you could look at... I mean, you you wouldn't be able to look at a calendar and predict all this, but you could look back in hindsight and see what the climate was like at a certain century or millennia and also what the Earth's position was relative to the sun or whatever and be able to calculate what the decay rate of carbon 14 would be at that point in history and that's how they're able to calculate all this assuming you explained all of that correctly i think i'm following you yeah i think the easiest way to visualize it at least for me is when you think about them doing ice core measures where they drill a cylinder into like a glacier Mm -hmm. and they pull it out and they look at all the different levels of ice from fallen precipitation over centuries, I mean, much like rocks or even rings on a tree, you see layers. And each of those layers, if measured for this carbon-14 isotope, would be different in a predictable way. But those layers might not specifically add up to time in the same way we measure it. Okay. Now, to make it even more complicated... They use 1950 as the baseline year. So when they say before present, what they really mean to the rest of us is before 1950. So they're not saying 
these, you know, the one that was 13,300 years BP isn't 13,300 years before 2021. It's that many years before 1950. And there are two reasons for that. A, 1950 is around the time when radiocarbon dating, which was first used in 1940, became the standard way of measuring these prehistoric artifacts and ancient artifacts. The other problem is that because humanity is so darned interested in blowing itself to pieces <laughs> and started using nuclear bombs around this same time period, the carbon-14 isotope in the atmosphere after 1950 isn't predictable and is relatively really? unstable because, yes, because we have <laughs> performed so many nuclear explosion tests. That's fascinating. alternated the way carbon-14 can be used as a dating metric. And millennia from now, future scientists will be like, what was happening in the world at that point that we can no longer track whatever isotope they're tracking to date our civilizations? <laughs> right. And here's the best part. There are actually scientists right now working on developing a post-1950 calibration, which is known as the bomb curve. <laughs> that sounds way cooler than it probably is. I mean, it's from a scientific perspective, I guess it's kind of cool, but from like an existential <laughs> humanity perspective, it's a little depressing. It's probably not that like serious, but some scientists is like, we should totally call this the bomb curve. Well, and think about it. If the nuclear bomb and its invention and then its subsequent testing altered this isotope, an easy way to understand what we just talked about is that hundreds of thousands of years from now, if they did an ice core test and found, you know, the 2021 or 1980 layer of ice, they would see these fluctuations. They would see around the time and invention of the atomic bomb that the carbon-14 isotope started doing weird shit. <laughs> and, you know, future people, if, if we didn't have all of these ways of recording what we've done, future humans could have looked back and been like, I wonder what happened. They might assume it was a comet. I don't know. It's pretty bold of you to assume that there's going to be any ice left on the Earth hundreds of thousands of years from now. I don't know. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna turn it around. I have. I've fallen into a place of blind optimism. <laughs> and also, Aloysius Lilius's calendar will be off by a few days by then. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, now that we've taken this giant tangent. Well, wait. After all this, when did the Clovis people actually? walk across north america so because the 13 the, the number i quoted earlier from the earliest known excavation or from the earliest known artifacts which was 13,390 calibrated years bp would mean 13,390 years before 1950 so 12,240 i will trust years your math BC. on that <laughs> so about 12,000 years ago. Okay. Got it. No, I'm sorry. That's incorrect. 12,000 <laughs> BC. 12,000 BC. <laughs> oh, man. So, recognizing that that was a lot, I figured this would be a good time for us to take a short break and let everybody's minds 
mull over and process what I've just discussed. If you need to Google <laughs> anything I said, please feel free to pause, rewind, go have a look for yourself and Don't come subject back and yourself we'll talk to about that. <laughs> it actually is really interesting if you understand it. I'm it, just not a statistical wizard and a lot of it doesn't. It makes a lot more sense now that we've talked about it versus trying to read your outline the other day. <laughs> That's fair. I understand that. I read my outline and I wrote it and didn't understand it. So, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with this discovery and also talk about some alternative hypotheses to the Clovis culture. We'll be right back. Before you inevitably skip this ad, take a moment to boop the snoot of your furry history's B-side companion. And while you do, why not just the ad play in the background? Odie, get off the microphone! Boop! But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags... Stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. Boop! All right, welcome back. So now that we've kind of discussed what I can best describe as the foundation of the Clovis people and what they were about and what we've discovered about them and how we discovered it, I wanted to talk about the the discovery itself and how it came about in a little bit more detail. So it actually started with a cowboy, believe it or not. As all real good life stories cowboy. do. <laughs> Named George McJunkin. That is one of the best names we've ever had on History's B-Side. George McJunkin sounds like a video game character in like a steampunk world where he's like a, a junkyard collector or something. I'm George McJunkin. <laughs> Certified That's what I saw. cowboy. Certified cowboy and junk collector. So, this gentleman, who almost assuredly does not have that accent, <laughs> found an ancient bison, or bison antiquus, skeleton in 1908 after a flash flood. The site was first excavated in 1926 near Folsom, New Mexico, under the direction of Harold Cook and Jesse Figgins. On the 29th of August, 1927, they found the first in situ, or original place, Folsom Point with the extinct bison antiquus bones. 
for clarification, the Folsom Point is a different arrowhead than the Clovis Point. Uh, it's a different style. They're similar in in the way they were made. They were both bifacial arrowheads, meaning they were carved on both sides. The main difference is, you know, that flute we talked about earlier that would be used to attach these points to sticks and spears. The Folsom Point's flute was much shorter than the Clovis Point. The Clovis Point went almost all the way up the arrowhead, whereas the Folsom Point stopped at a certain point. So not a huge difference, just indicated a different style of making these tools, which would hint at, I guess, a different culture or a separate culture that wasn't in contact with one another. So they're different than the Clovis people? It's likely that they are based on the fact that they were designed differently. If you think about it this way, if you had one group of people over here designing things one way and another over on the other side of the continent or in a different area designing things another way, and they both interacted, it's likely that those points would be joined in some way, that the the way they were designed would be meshed together as the cultures borrowed technology off of one another. But these are two distinct and repeated styles of arrowhead the Clovis and the Folsom point that didn't really change a lot. So it does indicate a separate culture, but did they exist simultaneously? No, the Folsom point came, the Folsom people who used the Folsom point came about a bit later, at least as far as we know, as far as the information and the artifacts we've gathered, the Folsom point seems to be, have been a more recent piece of technology. Okay. So nonetheless, this cowboy finds these Folsom points near extinct bison bones and this confirmation of a human presence in the americas during the pleistocene era inspired many people and many scientists to start looking for evidence of earlier humans so when you say human presence that's just finding these tools that's not like remains like bodily remains correct okay yes at this point at this point in time in 1926 the Folsom point this arrowhead was the only evidence of early humans in north america at least from this period of time because obviously only humans would be making actual tools right okay in 1929 19 year old ridgely whiteman who had been closely following the excavations in nearby Folsom in the newspaper discovered the clovis site near the blackwater draw in eastern new mexico Despite several earlier Paleo-Indian discoveries, the best documented evidence of the Clovis complex was collected and excavated between 1932 and 1937 near the town that I mentioned, Clovis, New Mexico, by a crew under the direction of Edgar Billings Howard until 1935 and later by John Cotter from the Academy of Natural Sciences and the University of Pennsylvania. Howard's crew left their excavation in Burnett Cave, New Mexico, which is the first truly professionally excavated Clovis site, in August 1932, and visited Whiteman in his Blackwater Draw site. By November, Howard was back at Blackwater Draw to investigate additional finds from a construction project. The American Journal of Archaeology, from January through March 1932, volume 36, number one, in case you want to find it, <laughs> In its archaeological notes, mentions E.B. Howard's work in Burnett Cave, including the discovery of extinct fauna and a Folsom-type point four feet below a basket maker burial. This brief mention of the Clovis Point found in place antedates any work at the Dent site in Colorado. Antedates means 
it was older? Perceives. Yes. Okay. And for context, the Dent site in Colorado was an excavation site that yielded Clovis projectiles and Clovis points that basically provided early evidence that humans and woolly mammoths coexisted in the Americas. So the Dent site would have been a well-known dig at the time. Hmm. The first report of professional work at the Blackwater Draw Clovis site is in the November 25th, 1932 issue of Science News. The publications on Burnett Cave and Blackwater Draw directly contradict statements by several authors that Dent, Colorado was the first excavated Clovis site. So essentially, these two sites had artifacts that predated those in Dent, which allowed scientists to go further back in time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I mean, I think this is crazy. It must have been so fascinating for scientists and archaeologists to find this stuff and realize how old it actually was yeah and and the thing is it still i think is that way you know the way scientists and researchers are gaining access to new technology every day you know this episode might be irrelevant in a couple years yeah (laughs) or a couple decades especially like we don't know what we're going to be able to find and how we're going to be able to verify it in the coming decades so this is kind of a it's an interesting like almost reversal in time where the longer we work on it the further back in time we can see right so every new find predates the earlier one or might predate the earlier one in addition to these sites in 1968 in montana another clovis burial site was found where the remains of a two-year-old child were studied these remains have been nicknamed as anzic one so this is the first time they're finding actual human remains was it right just bones or would there be anything else pretty much at this point yeah it's it was just the skeleton it was found with a lot of these tools like clovis points and bison bones but yes this is the first time we actually had physical evidence of a human body do you know where the name comes from anzic in keeping with the general tradition of archaeologists it was named anzic one because it was found on the ranch of a family by the name of anzic <laughs> i had a feeling i didn't know if there was like an anzic montana that it might have been found near so we've talked a lot about the clovis people and how we discovered them and how we know they existed and some other culture but you still might be asking why is this important And one of the reasons is that available genetic data show that these Clovis people are direct ancestors of roughly 80% of all living Native American populations in North and South America, with the remainder descended from ancestors who entered in later waves of migration. So when we think about, like, you know, who preceded Leif Erikson and Amerigo Vespucci and Christopher Columbus and the Europeans that you know, discovered, quote unquote, North America. We're talking about indigenous people. And a lot of them, at least 80% of their blood was descended from Clovis people. Hmm. That's amazing. Like, (laughs) we talked about 23andMe a couple weeks ago. (laughs) How many, I guess, how many ancestors do you have that are like an 80% match to your DNA? That's really interesting that clearly the Clovis people had a direct line to what we know as Native Americans today. Right. And that's why they're so important. Indigenous Native Americans, you know, in the 15, 16, 1700s, 
were grouped into hundreds, if not thousands of different communities and populations, some of which were completely different from one another, but they all descended from this one group of people that we've been studying that, you know, seem to have a continuous culture based on this tool, just based on a arrowhead yeah. that was of similar style. I want to know what it's like to be one of these researchers, to be honest, and just have spent like most of my professional life studying an arrowhead. I just, I admire the perseverance and passion and focus to do that. Cause like, I feel like I get bored after a while. And hundreds and thousands of years from now, future scientists and archaeologists will be like, what is this small glass brick that all these former <laughs> life forms had right on their thigh? <laughs> right. So we know that the Clovis people are direct ancestors of about 80% of Native American populations. As reported in February 2014, DNA from the 12,600-year-old remains of Anzic Boy, as he became known, that were found in Montana, has affirmed this connection to the peoples of the Americas. In addition, this DNA analysis affirmed genetic connections back to ancestral peoples of Northeast Asia, which adds weight to the theory that peoples migrated across a land bridge from Siberia to North America. So it's kind of incredible to me that this many years later, you know, 13,000 years later, we're able to look back and have data enough to suggest that we can name how these people got here. Yeah. <laughs> so that would suggest that the quote unquote first Americans kind of came from Russia or other parts of Asia. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, present day Russia is, is where they would have migrated from around that land bridge from Siberia to present day Alaska. Which is something that, you know, I feel like I've been told for a long time is the general scientific hypothesis. But it's cool to have direct evidence that might support that in a more concrete way. This is why I always play for Kamchatka when I'm playing Risk. Is that, that that's where the earliest North Americans were from? The real Americans? Yes. The ones that were here first, <laughs> before all these immigrants came in? It's important to me. So... We know that they're descendants of more modern day, I should say, as in pre-colonial Native Americans. But what happened to the Clovis people? The most commonly held perspective on the end of the Clovis culture is that a decline in the availability of fauna combined with an overall increase in a less mobile population led to local differentiation of cultural traditions across the Americas. Essentially, as these people found climates that were more hospitable to them they stopped moving they stopped migrating and thus stopped interacting with each other hmm. and started to differentiate in the way they lived in their culture and this is probably what led to the numerous different native american tribes that we would see later on after this time clovis style fluted points were replaced by other fluted point traditions such as the Folsom point and the Folsom culture that i mentioned earlier with an essentially uninterrupted sequence across North and Central America. Whether the Clovis culture drove the mammoth and other species to extinction via overhunting, the so-called Pleistocene overkill hypothesis, is still an open and controversial question. It has also been hypothesized that the Clovis culture had its decline in the wake of the Younger Dryas cold phase. 
This cold shock, as they call it, lasting roughly 1,500 years, affected many parts of the world, including North America. This appears to have been triggered by a vast amount of meltwater from present-day Canada, emptying into the North Atlantic, disrupting the thermohaline circulation, or, in layman's terms, the change in ocean currents and ocean temperatures, which would have affected weather on dry land. So it's the opposite of global warming. Essentially, yes. <laughs> in extra terms. I don't understand terms. exactly how it works. <laughs> yes, I don't understand exactly how it works, but this this cold period was triggered by this vast amount of meltwater from basically central Canada. This Younger Dryas hypothesis, or Clovis Comet hypothesis, originally proposed that a large airburst or Earth impact of a comet or several comets from outer space initiated the Younger Dryas cold period about 12,900 BP years ago. Which is, what, 11,000? 11,000, no, less than that, 10,000. No, no, it'd be closer to 12, it'd be like 11,000. Oh, you're right. I can't math. Right. 11,050 <laughs> 11, years ago, right? No. <laughs> We're so bad at math. Maybe. Oh, <laughs> 11,050 BC, not years ago. Something no, like it would have been 10,000. You're right. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> the scientists listening to this episode are like, Jesus. <laughs> and the math. People who can do basic mental math that we can't. Oh. So this hypothesis has been largely contradicted by research showing that most of the findings cannot be repeated by other scientists and criticized because of misinterpretation of data and the lack of confirmatory evidence. However, proponents of the Younger Dryas hypothesis have responded, disputing the accusation of irreproducibility or replicating their findings. In 2013, a group from Harvard reported finding a layer of increased platinum composition exactly at the Younger Dryas onset in a Greenland ice core, followed in 2017 by a report that the PT spike had been replicated at 11 continental Younger Dryas sites. So out of all these, what hypothesis do you agree with? What do you think killed off the Clovis people? Maybe not killed know. off, but ended the Clovis people. <laughs> if, if scientists can't agree, I don't know that I have a place making a decision just yet. But I think the Younger Dryas thing sounds plausible. And, you know, there is some evidence for it. We've talked about the accuracy and the widespread use of radiocarbon dating. And though it's not exactly radiocarbon dating, using these ice cores that I described briefly earlier to find these composition metals in different layers, I think does point to an event of some sort. So I, I don't want to cop out by saying both, but I think it's likely that something happens to cause these cultures to change, whether it was climate change or the extinction of their main food source. You know, something caused the Clovis people to stop mingling with one another and change into different cultures mm -hmm. so i guess my answer is i'm waiting for science <laughs> <laughs> before i make a firm decision cop out if i had to vote based on whether or not it was the younger dryas hypothesis or or not i don't know that i i don't know who i'd vote for <laughs> maybe i'm a poor citizen <laughs> so now we get to the even more complicated and interesting part of the episode 
don't press pause just yet. It gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've spent this whole time discussing the Clovis people, and now I'm going to provide some evidence that they weren't the first known peoples in the Americas. But first I'll start talking about the hypothesis that they were the first, which is understandably known as the Clovis first hypothesis, which was the predominant belief among archaeologists in the latter half of the 20th century that the people associated with the Clovis culture were the very first inhabitants of the Americas. The primary support for this was that no solid evidence of pre-Clovis human habitation had been found. So when I talked earlier about how as time moves on, they're reaching further and further back into the past, this is, I think, an example of that where several years ago, the Clovis first thing seemed like a good idea, right? Like we had no evidence of anything earlier and couldn't get any and hadn't discovered any. So, you know, for a period of time, it was safe to assert that the Clovis people were the first because we didn't know any better. But as I said, time moves on and so does science and they found earlier peoples. According to the standard accepted theory, the Clovis people crossed the Beringia land bridge over the Bering Strait from Siberia to Alaska during the period of lowered sea levels during the Ice Age, then made their way southward through an ice-free corridor east of the Rocky Mountains in present-day western Canada as the glaciers retreated. This hypothesis came to be challenged by studies suggesting a pre-Clovis human occupation of the Americas. In 2011, following the excavation of an occupation site at Buttermilk Creek, Texas, a prominent group of scientists claimed to have definitely established the existence of an occupation older than Clovis. Please tell me that this older civilization is known as the Buttermilk people. I don't believe they are. I don't, I mean, to be, I mean, to be frankly honest, they, I guess they kind of are because in, in the research, none of these people really have names. It's just notes of archeological sites that happen to predate Clovis culture. So a scientist might very well without a name, call the people who left the tools and evidence behind it, Buttermilk Creek, the Buttermilk Creek people. I love the idea of an ancient civilization being known as the buttermilk people. Well, maybe maybe History's B-Side has a future episode when more evidence is confirmed. (laughs) I hope we can call an episode the buttermilk episode. Indigenous peoples named after a type of ranch dressing. Hey, blame the people that named towns in Texas. (laughs) That does sound like a very Texas town, doesn't it? Either Texas or Wisconsin. (laughs) So they established this occupation older than Clovis. According to researchers Michael Waters and Thomas Stafford of Texas A&M University, new radiocarbon dates place Clovis remains from the continental United States in a shorter time window, beginning 450 years later than the previously accepted threshold, which was about 13,200 to 12,900 BP. So the remains they were studying, were they not actually Clovis people, or they were Clovis people, but their estimates were off? I think we were wrong in calling these people Clovis people. I think the evidence they found changed how they thought about these different artifacts, and that made the Clovis time window shorten a bit, because they found that these other artifacts that were found during this time period had different characteristics that differentiated them from the Clovis people. So do we know anything specifically about the older groups? Like, was there anything defining about their culture? 
not necessarily. Um, essentially just a different set of tools that would have been found that were not Clovis-like in nature. Essentially, all the archaeologists are looking for is evidence that certain cultures had continuity. And one way you would do that is by looking at their tools, right? If if we looked back in time to now and everybody had these, as you described them, glass boxes, right? And then all of a sudden in a, in a similar area, people started using circular boxes <laughs> exclusively and none of the people using these were using circular ones and vice versa. And at the same time, the evidence of the glass boxes completely stopped and the evidence of the glass circles <laughs> continued, you could essentially assume that the glass box people ceased to exist for some sort of reason and the glass circle people... This is a really confusing analogy for people listening to the podcast because I'm watching you wave your phone in the air. <laughs> But we've never actually used the word here, phone. We've just been saying glass box and glass I think circle. People got but... it. <laughs> but isn't it funny that, like, in most sci-fi futuristic type movies, like if they have a form of a cell phone, it's usually not shaped like a cell phone as we know it now. Like it's always a circle or a pyramid yeah. or something like that. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I'm glad it is what it is because, like, this fits in a in the pocket of jeans. A circle wouldn't, depending on the size of it, I suppose. Yeah, it would. Well. I also feel like I'd drop a circle a whole lot. <laughs> you drop your phone enough as it is. I do. I don't need circular iPhones. <laughs> so all of this is to say that recently the scientific consensus has changed to acknowledge the presence of pre-clovis cultures in the americas ending the clovis first consensus so what do we know about the people who would be alternatives to clovis first or would be or would predate the clovis people predecessors of the clovis people might have migrated south along the north american coastlines although arguments exist for many migrations along several different routes Radiocarbon dating of the Monte Verde site in Chile placed Clovis-like culture there as early as 18,500 to 14,500 wow. years ago. So significantly, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of years later or earlier than the Clovis people. What would cause these groups to migrate along these routes? Is it just that they were following whatever herds they were hunting Probably a combination of, of following these herds. I mean, if you think about it, like if woolly mammoth or bison are following climate routes, it means they can survive there. It's probably at least a decent chance that we can survive there too. And one of the necessary resources for survival at all is food. So it's probably likely that they were following animal routes as well as following migration routes that had climates that were more accessible to human occupation when we talked about just a few minutes ago the clovis people stopped moving stopped migrating is that because the herds that they were following also stopped like once they reached a comfortable climate in say central america what we know today is central america not central america, central united states is a pretty yeah comfortable climate to live in so once these herds reached that point then the clovis people or earlier groups of people also stopped in these more comfortable areas probably i think i i think there's a lot of different variables at play 
And you have to consider that the climate back then might not be what we're used to now. Yeah, that's true. Like, <laughs> you know, people inhabiting the land that is now central California might not have been or existed in the same climate. In fact, it's likely that it was much different, probably much colder. And so it makes sense that a lot of these are found in the southern United States, Mexico, and northern Central America, as these would have been the warmest areas where life would have been most likely to thrive in an ice age sort of situation. Which is funny to think that like New Mexico is not where you picture thriving, bountiful life. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, things were different. Yeah. I do imagine like I I understand the, the suggestion that they migrated along coastlines makes sense to me because you would, I suppose, essentially double your food availability in that you could hunt bison or mammoth or land animals but you'd also have access to the sea where there were fish right. and other food sources and generally near coastlines you've got a lot of options as far as rivers and creeks and water running to the ocean that would be fresh and accessible to you although in an ice age i don't know how important that was <laughs> so some of these alternative hypotheses or I guess the evidence for such are as follows. Remains found at the Channel Islands of California placed coastal Paleo-Indians there 12,500 years ago. This suggests that the Paleo-Indian migration could have spread more quickly along the Pacific coastline proceeding south, and that populations that settled along that route could have then begun migrations eastward into the continent. The Pedra Furada sites in Brazil include a collection of rock shelters, which were used for thousands of years by diverse human populations. The first excavations yielded artifacts with carbon-14 dates of 48,000 <laughs> to 32,000 years BP, which is bonkers. Like, So we have nothing in North America to suggest anything that old, but then in Brazil, there's carbon-14 dates 32,000 yeah. years ago? But these... If you're carbon dating rocks, wouldn't the rocks have been there before the people were? Yes, but when you like when you think about the way our climate and weather works over centuries, these rocks would have been covered up and buried and thus kind of solidified in in their I don't know what to call it, in their current state. So, I think the idea is once something's buried enough beneath the surface, the carbon-14 isotope isn't going to change. And you also have to understand, like, these rocks that... One of the variations, I suppose, that they have to calculate is that all rock, or a lot of the rock that would have been used by these peoples would have been sedimentary rock, which is essentially formed by dust falling, Mm -hmm. compacting, and settling. So, you know, if if a layer of rock falls at a certain point in time from the air with this carbon-14 isotope. It's not going to change once it's solidified as rock. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I feel like my mind is blown by all of this. <laughs> it's intense. I am struggling to understand it myself as I explain <laughs> it. So I feel like we definitely should have had like an archaeologist on this <laughs> on this episode to explain this. I, I, I wish I had somebody to look at and be like, can you explain this like I'm five? Because I basically am. That's how I feel. And you, I know you're not an expert, but you apparently understand it better than I do. I commend you for taking on I mean, this challenge. <laughs> I definitely find it interesting. I, I'm frustrated with the fact that I 
I don't understand it as well as I'd like mm-hmm. to, but I'm also not an archaeologist, and that's okay. <laughs> to push the needle back even further in time, repeated analysis of this Pedro Ferrada site in Brazil confirmed this dating, carrying the range of dates up to 60,000 BP. The best analyzed archaeological levels are dated between 32,000 and 17,000 BP, which is still much further back in time than the Clovis people would have been. Though these claims have become an issue of contention between North American archaeologists and their South American and European counterparts, who disagree on whether it is conclusively proven to be an older human site. So if I'm understanding all of this, does this suggest that human groups lived in South America prior to North America? If you only believe this evidence, yes. Which is probably why it's so contentious. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I that's like I'm having this weird dissonance in my brain trying to understand it because if we believe that people only migrated to the Americas and weren't, I don't know, originally from here, whether you believe that from creation or whatever scientific theory of creation you believe in like if people weren't originally from the americas and they only migrated to the americas how did they end up in south america prior to north america well i think and this is speculation based on my understanding of how science works i think you have to understand that we're looking through a lens that is fuzzy that is blurry And we can only pick out certain points like this radiocarbon dating thing. A can only be used where we find sites and even then isn't perfectly accurate. So I think if we're to assume that the Clovis people dating was right and this Brazil site dating was correct, you know, maybe it's likely that there's dozens or hundreds of sites that are either too deep, inaccessible or just were destroyed in North America that we don't even know about. You know, it's not necessarily certain that every single human occupation was preserved well enough to be studied by future generations. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of years and several different glacial periods and ice ages and erosion and water runoff and glaciers melting and then refreezing and different weather patterns. I think it's possible that there is older evidence in North America and we either haven't found it yet or it's not accessible or was washed away or doesn't exist. I think it's just frustrating because, you know, as just being naturally curious about history and understanding the first people to come from wherever they came from or live wherever they lived, it's frustrating that we have evidence of life that is up to 60,000 years old in South America that you, you, I mean, it makes sense that they would have traveled through North America to get there, but to just chalk that up to that evidence was just destroyed or we haven't been able to find it yet is like, how can we find this in South America, but we can't find it in North America. Like that, that's, it's just, just, that's what's hard to understand about all this i'm not saying it's hard to believe because i I think it does make sense in the way that it's calculated but it's very frustrating to accept that as just the explanations that we haven't found it yet or that it it just got destroyed or something like that because that there's so much evidence that hasn't been destroyed or has been found that what where are the missing links (laughs) 
Well, there actually is some evidence in North America that dates that far back, and we'll get to that in a moment. But another, I think a good metaphor that I've used for a long time and to help you and our listeners understand, I guess, or at least inhabit the mindset of these scientists is, have you ever played a video game where the map is black until you walk wherever you're going and then the map uncovers itself yes but i hate this analogy (laughs) okay but that's how i i mean i that's how i feel about science in general no i mean i i totally get that but that's the same like that doesn't explain the frustrating part that i'm saying like that even with that analogy you would have had to skip a part of the map to get to the point that you're at you know what i mean like clearly If they're migrating, they can't have skipped North America to end up in South America. They would have had to walk through there. It's just that there's no evidence of that happening. I'm not using that analogy necessarily to explain their movement. I'm using it to explain, like, science's movement through knowledge. Right. No, I get that. You know, we don't know for sure whether or not there were people in North America yet 60,000 years ago. But we might soon. We just haven't gotten there. But I, like I said, there is some evidence. In 2004, worked stone tools were found at Topper in South Carolina that have been dated by radiocarbon techniques possibly to 50,000 years ago. So there is some evidence in North America for communities dating this far back. However, there is, to make it more frustrating, <laughs> significant scholarly dispute regarding these dates. Scholars agree that evidence of humans at the Topper site date back to at least 22,900 BP, but still doesn't hit what the Brazil site claims to hit. A more substantiated claim is that of Paisley Caves here in Oregon, where rigorous carbon-14 and genetic testing appears to indicate that humans related to modern Native Americans were present in the caves over a thousand years before the earliest evidence of Clovis. A study published in Science presents strong evidence that humans occupied sites in Monte Verde, Chile, at the tip of South America, as early as 13,000 years ago. If this is true, then humans must have entered North America long before the Clovis culture, perhaps 16,000 years Mm. ago. The Tlapacoya site in Mexico is located along the base of a volcanic hill on the shore of former Lake Chalco. 17 excavations along the base of Tlapacoya Hill between 1956 and 1973 uncovered piles of disarticulated bones of bear and deer that appear to have been butchered, plus 2,500 flakes and blades, presumably from the butchering activities, plus one unfluted spear point. All were found in the same stratum containing three circular hearths filled with charcoal and ash, which would indicate fire bones of many other animal species were also present including horses and migratory waterfowl two uncalibrated radiocarbon dates on carbon from the hearths came in around 24,000 and 22,000 years ago at another location a prismatic microblade of obsidian was found in association with a tree trunk radiocarbon dated at roughly 24,000 years ago so I've thrown out several numbers now between about 13,000 years and 60,000 years. (laughs) So I can totally understand the frustration and the confusion. I think the idea is that we suspend unquestioning belief in any of this until there's more information. 
I, this whole topic is extremely fascinating. Like it's, it's bringing back a lot of my school age knowledge and studies of what we know about just real basic archeology span and first human civilizations and migrations and all that stuff. But it is extremely frustrating and like hard to comprehend and understand. (laughs) So I don't know, like, I I think it's so interesting, but it's also just like hard to accept isn't the right phrase I'm looking for, but it's also just like, how do we know some things with such seemingly certainty but there's still huge gaps in what we don't know. And I know it's just a, a matter of like, you only have to study what you're able to discover. <laughs> and if it's not there, it's not there. Right. <laughs> have you ever heard of the parable of the five blind men? With It's like an elephant or something where they, one studies yeah. the feet, one studies the yeah. trunk, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I try to view this where, you know, what we have now the technology we have now, the research methods we have now, allow us only to touch certain parts of the elephant. So, you know... Or the glomosphere or whatever that thing was called. <laughs> right. So, you know, we might be further along than just touching the leg and assuming it's a tree, as the parable goes. Right. You know, we might have touched the leg and the trunk, and we know there's something here. But we, I don't think, scientifically this far back in time are at a place where we can see or touch the whole animal and understand its entirety. Mm-hmm. Who knows? In a couple of years, maybe they'll develop a different technique and we'll be able to find out that there were human beings on North America a hundred thousand years ago. We, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to tell and it's hard to know until there's new evidence and new, you know, I think scientific techniques to figure it out. Which is, I think, maybe the hardest part of science is that you kind of have to suspend the human need to have a definite, permanent answer. I want my answer. (laughs) I know. The the OCD part of me does too. And since you did the research on this episode, I'm going to ask you to give your final decision here, the official history's B-side standpoint. When did the first Americans arrive? Where did they settle and what route did they take to get there? I think the route that they took to get here was the Bering Strait, uh, a land bridge between Siberia and here. That I do think that I would be shocked and surprised and very excited to find out was not the case because it would be interesting to learn how they did get here. But given the technology at the time, I don't see it possible that any of these peoples cross the Pacific Ocean. And given what we know about geology, I think the Bering Strait is the most likely way peoples got here. And the other part of it is, you know, if you were a Paleo-Indian prehistoric human in Eastern Asia, like, why would you get on a boat and just, you know, paddle for months i mean good lord it took three months for ships to get here right with sails so like we're talking about people that were probably using canoes i i don't buy that they crossed the pacific ocean for fun just to see what was out there for more on that go listen to uh the first person to circumnavigate the globe i think it was like episode 17 or something 
Yeah. As far as when, I, I like that's, I mean, I'm basically choosing a number between 13 and 60,000. Or earlier. Or earlier. So, I, I mean, I we could find that it happened earlier. I think it was at least, like, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I think it was at least 13,000 years ago. If we had to give a, if I had to, was forced to today give a an official history's B-side number, I think I would say somewhere around 30 to 40,000 years ago. Which is a 10,000 year spread. Wouldn't you think it would be at least 60 or beyond, though? If we have carbon dating to nearly verify that number, there, it would have to be at least that far back? Possibly. It worries me that scientists themselves question that okay. yeah, that's data. <laughs> and, and I'm going back to the phrase, the best analyzed archaeological levels are dated between 32,000 and 17,000 BP. Okay. So the best sites that we've analyzed yield a number of 32,000. And that makes me comfortable in saying that's our official history's B-side <laughs> projection is that it's somewhere in the 30,000 range. And that could change. I think as far as where they settled, it makes sense that they would have followed the coastline because that's if they're following the path that I think they took, it would have just conti- like, why would you not continue to follow the coast? right you're already on the coast you're still on the coast in the bering strait unless there's some bizarre reason to not continue to do that and again i don't know the geology that existed back then and i don't know the climate but as far as the west coast goes now it's more moderate than it is more inland towards the rockies it's it's just a more hospitable climate and i imagine it probably was so when the entire world's climate was colder. So I feel like staying along the coast near the sea would have been advantageous to them. So I, I kind of buy that, you know, they followed that route all the way into South America. Not only is the coastline a navigational tool, but it's a climate tool as well. The oceans moderate the weather and provide food. So it makes sense to me that people would have settled along a coastline first. Well, we are the defining authority on all things history, science, culture, geology. <laughs> you can all feel free to reach out to us in five to ten to thirty years, thousand years, when new information is found, <laughs> and correct my hypothesis <laughs> that is completely unscientific and really based on a very rudimentary knowledge of this topic. But I'm I'm sticking with what I said. And now to test whether or not we should trust you, should we move on to the quiz section? I, I'm terrified for this quiz section. This might be our longest episode. We're at 130, 100. We're at an hour and 37 minutes. So well, we're going to cut let's quite a bit out before we get to that part. But yeah, it's going to be a tough quiz. It, I'm not optimistic for you. <laughs> I'm not either. We'll be right back. All right. Thanks for sticking with us throughout this episode that feels like it's been going on for 60,000 years. But <laughs> really, it's only what? We're probably near like an hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes, maybe. We're about there. <laughs> Science takes a long time to explain. I think our other, like, one of our other 
longest episodes was James with the evolution. Yeah, that and your wine Nazi one was pretty long too. That one, that one didn't have too much, uh, too much science in it, but uh, some talk about chemistry. I was, I was passionate and I was interested. <laughs> well, as our listeners know, we like to end every episode with a short three-question quiz, and I do mean short because this episode has gone on long enough. But we like to test today's host to see how much he studied around his topic and how well he knows it. And you seem very knowledgeable on this one, so I'm sure you'll do just fine. <laughs> and maybe you, the listener at home, has known a bit about this or has been following along close enough that you can guess some of these and play along too. I will say this might be the most difficult quiz I've ever had for you. Great. <laughs> I love it. I I didn't know what to ask about this because I didn't understand the topic going into it. It was super fascinating. I very much enjoyed it, but very complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. So should we just dive right in? I think we should. All right. So for your first question, I was hung up on the idea that this ancient civilization was named after a fairly modern town in new mexico so your first question is going to be about clovis new mexico and basically there's two parts to it if you can get either part right then i'll be happy for you when was the city of clovis new mexico founded and how did it get its name oh my god oh no (laughs) i have no idea when it was founded not the first clue. Just give a guess. Throw throw a year out there. Um, New Mexico. New Mexico. I'm gonna say like 1880. That's wrong. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> Any guesses on the name? My only guess would be that there's some sort of cl- clover that lives there. <laughs> I or, or clover clover lake plant it's new mexico isn't it the desert i don't know (laughs) okay so clovis new mexico was first founded in 1906 as a stopover town along the atchison topeka and santa fe railway so basically it was a a Mm. train station and the town was originally known as riley's switch but it was renamed by the rail station master's daughter who called it clovis (laughs) Which was named after the first Catholic king of the Germanic Franks, <laughs> who reigned in the early sixth oh, century. So I don't know; it was pretty out there, <laughs> but I was just really curious that's about all okay. of it. It was that's it. No, that's a good that's a good thing to know. It was formally incorporated in 1909, so early 1900s would have been correct on that one. I think it's funny that it's technically named after a late 5th, early 6th century Catholic German ruler. But really, it ended up being the name for the first, well, quote-unquote, first Americans. (laughs) I bet bet he didn't know. I bet Clovis didn't know that that was going to happen. I'm sure that he didn't. I bet Clovis didn't know that New Mexico would ever be a thing either. Or, frankly, Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) right question number two i don't think you ever actually used this term in the episode you use the term paleo indian 
which is another description of what's known as the Lithic period. The Clovis people belong to what we know as the Lithic period. Uh, and basically, this period, historians believe, ended between somewhere between 5000 and 3000 BC. This end of the Lithic period and the beginning of the Archaic period, which preceded it, preceded, followed, Archaic period came after the Lithic period. Uh, this end and transition was characterized by transitioning from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a lifestyle characterized by what? So obviously the Clovis point is important to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Uh, but this new archaic period, they weren't hunter-gatherers. They were known for what? I would guess agriculture, farming. Bingo, agriculture. But specifically, anything beyond that? Corn? <laughs> Wheat? Agriculture utilizing domesticated animals. Oh, yeah. okay. That makes sense, I guess. Yep. And then they also had the development of textiles and fired pottery. So a little bit more, what would we call it, like civilized, I guess, than hunter-gatherer. Although it's not really like that resemblant of what we know today. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm glad you got one. Sort of. Yeah. I did. <laughs> sort of. I mean, you pretty much got it. Yeah. Question number three. And this one is the one I thought you might actually get because it's sort of in the realm of Matt Melito. <laughs> you mentioned the Paisley Caves in Oregon, but in 2007, researchers from Oregon State University found evidence of human presence on the southern Oregon coast, which carbon dated to more than 10,000 years ago. Specifically, where were these remains discovered? I read about this. Are you looking for like the town name? Uh, or like what feature? It's it's a place inside of a town. If that makes sense. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll know it when I give you the answer. I have no I mean I'm literally going to just be guessing dumb stuff. Okay. So you might as well. So it was called Indian Sands in Boardman State Park. Oh, okay. So Boardman, Oregon, which I thought was hilarious because oh, really? we are from Boardman, Ohio. <laughs> Originally from Boardman, Ohio. Yeah. And when we first launched the podcast, I assume like we can look and see where people are listening from and i assumed when we had oregon listeners that they'd be from portland maybe people that knew you but the majority of right. our or majority of our oregonian listeners are from boardman oregon and i was like very surprised to yeah. see that i was like you know we're we're from boardman but not boardman oregon <laughs> yeah we actually drove through boardman when i was driving to portland from ohio oh really yeah, it it, uh, it. I actually took a picture. I don't have it anymore because I've changed phones several <laughs> times. But the, I have a picture of the mileage sign that says Boardman, two miles, Portland, like four hundred and seventy. <laughs> you drove a little more than that. It was though. like the. F 
was yeah, it was one of the first towns once we crossed over the Washington border that we hit. And just happened to be named Boardman. Well, little shout out to any listeners in Boardman, Oregon. Please reach out to mm-hmm. us and let us know that you heard it. <laughs> but anyway, this specific discovery in 2007 was believed to be more than 2,000 years older than previously known archaeological sites on Oregon's coast. And it was very similar to 12,000-year-old artifacts that were found on the Alaskan and British Columbian coasts. So, pretty interesting. Yeah. You did not bad. I mean, you you got the second one, and I don't know. I I'll feel like you, you might have gotten that one if you had thought about it a little longer. So you said Boardman, Oregon was on the coast at the time? Um. Okay, so it's in Boardman State Park. I'm not super familiar with Oregon, so I, I assume that was near Boardman, Oregon, but maybe it's not. It might be a different town. It's in Brookings, Oregon which is on the coast okay so boardman oregon is inland it's like in eastern oregon uh, in like on the border between oregon and and washington but i have heard of samuel h boardman state scenic corridor if you've ever seen pictures of the oregon coast where there's like a bunch of rocks out in the water that's boardman state scenic corridor and it is it is on the coast but it's not the current coast it is not in Boardman, Oregon. It is closest to Brookings, Oregon, which is almost to California. Like the, it's the last town on the coast in Southern Oregon before you hit California on the 101. Well, the one time that I went to the Oregon coast, there were a bunch of rocks on the coast, but it wasn't Boardman yeah, State Park. That was there. so. It's <laughs> it's probably a three or four hour drive south of where you yeah. were on the board, <laughs> on the Oregon coast. Well, I didn't do as well on that quiz as I thought. I might actually. That's not true. I did exactly what I thought I would, <laughs> and I didn't expect to do well on it. So did okay then. If you've made it to this point in the episode, I'd like to start off by saying I'm proud of you. <laughs> Hope your brain doesn't you hurt that it. bad. You now know what might be considered in coming years to be the first people to inhabit North America. If not, you've got a solid background on which to draw from to understand future scientific (laughs) advances. And especially if you've made it to this point, uh, we just want to say we appreciate your listenership and your attention and your passion when listening to our episodes. It takes a lot to put these together and... While we have a lot of fun doing it, we really appreciate that people have fun listening to us. So thank you. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us at historiesbside at gmail.com or hit us up on social media and we will get back to you as soon as we can. As always, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. History's B-Side is an independent listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your host, 
Matt Melito, and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.